0: I'm joined today by Chris Steuwalt. Chris is a former Fox News editor, a fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, and he's just written a rather good book. It's a book about the media in America and what's gone wrong. Broken news, how the media has divided America. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for having
1: me. Good to be with you.
0: I was quite surprised to, to read this book because you're someone who's obviously come from deep within the media. You, you worked for, for Fox News. Um, are you surprised that you came to some of the conclusions you've come to? I mean, it, it, it sounds like you've been on quite a journey. Well, I mean, <clears throat>
1: my journey began in 1998 when I started as a full-time newspaper reporter. My first newspaper job was when I was 17 uh, before I started college. Um, and I have had a front-row seat to the amazing, wonderful, terrible, terrifying, encouraging, uh, confusing um, experience of the greatest transition in media since at least the arrival of the broadcast era with radio. Um, It has uh, changed the way that we think. It's changed the way we vote. It's changed the way we work. It's changed everything, and I went from... You know, when I was 28 years old, I became the, the youngest ever political editor for the Charleston Daily Mail, capital newspaper in Charleston, West Virginia. And I believed that I would have that job for the rest of my life. I thought that that was it. I had a door with a uh, an office with a door that closed. Uh, I had arrived. And uh, within a year, that paper was crushed, right? Um, and what followed... Was- the, the coll- I hate to use, I hate to use terms like this, but uh, the media ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, was devastated, right? It was an extinction event that happened. And we lost tens of thousands of local news jobs uh, around the country. Uh, and I sort of followed the path, right? I went from local news, to an effort to consolidate more statewide news, uh, to an effort to, uh, to make all news national. And um, what I observed along the way was that the easiest, best way to keep and maintain an audience in a totally fragmented time, right, uh, was to use strong feelings. And the strongest feelings we have are fear and hate, right? The strongest feelings that we all as human beings have it's how we keep a species, uh, is fear and hate. Um, We have really great powers for coalition. Uh, I joke that people say how smart dolphins are but I've never seen a dolphin build a hospital. Uh, The um, human beings have this amazing capacity to work together with strangers um, and quickly form bonds and visualize uh and imagine things and then accomplish them together it's amazing this coalitional instinct among people is great everybody knows the experience uh of you're on an airplane with a bunch of strangers and after you're sitting on the tarmac for the second hour you have turned into a united force right you have turned into a united force steeled against the evil airline Mm -hmm. so the the coalitional instinct is strong but it comes at a cost and the cost is that we have strong feelings about people different from us. And those strong feelings are easily triggered. Um, and in the book, I talk about something called fundamental attribution error, uh, which um, the uh, social psychologist Lee Ross uh, dubbed. Uh, and it is the, the phenomenon by which uh, if you do it, you're doing it because you're bad. And that's the way you are. And people like you are like that. Guys who wear pink shirts do bad things because that's what guys who wear pink shirts do. Guys who wear blue shirts, when we do it, we do it for good reasons, right? When we break the rules, when we lie, cheat and steal, we do it because we have to, it's because of what was necessary. And that a very potent um, into our hardwire, into the circuitry of our species but, but, uh, makes us right pickings for uh, the divisive news.
0: But it's quite an astute observation, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to have your emotions played with, you might pay $10 to go to watch a movie, and the movie might uplift you, it might make you uh, cry, it might excite you, it would play with your emotions. And and you got that that emotional fix from going and being entertained at the cinema, the, the, the movie theatre. Um, the news industry, you're saying, has almost become... Um, a form of entertainment where the currency is is outrage and anger. It, it, it's, its model is to anger you, to to make you feel either self righteous when you're considering the sides, uh, uh, your side's actions, or um, appalled if you're considering what the the other lot have done. Um, so you're saying that that is very much the model of the news industry. Yeah, and i i don't i
1: don't think that it is a uh, it, it is it was not a diabolical scheme. Uh, it was a response to uh, a market inversion. Um, basically, <clears throat> so a bubble inflates uh, in the United States media world uh, during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. A lot of technology advanced to the point that it was possible for us to have a national news cycle for the first time starting in the mid-1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so this, of course, is propelled enormously forward by the unifying events of the second world war mm-hmm. and out of that there was a unified media landscape there were three major broadcast networks there were three two or three national newspaper newspapers that really carried clout nationally and there were a couple of wire services uh there were the radio uh, cousins to the television networks but it was a very closed shop and this had a lot of downsides um The conservatives can all attest uh, to what the downsides of this this uh, news oligarchy oligarchy was. Right, we we know we know that a lot of voices got shut out. By the way, so could um, minority uh, groups. So could women. So a lot of people could say a lot of things about what happens when uh, too much information is in too few hands and whose stories get told. But it did provide stability and it did provide a space for common discussion. So when two, so two things come along first is cable. So cable arrives and it cuts the legs out from under the big three broadcast networks. And actually American television consumption increases. This amazed me. This was maybe the most amazing fact that I, I discovered researching this book American uh, per household, average daily, Consumption of television in America did not peak until 2009, 2010, with nearly nine hours a day. That is like, that makes me feel dumber just thinking about so what people yeah, have got the
0: TV on in the background the whole time,
1: the whole all day. Right. So cable new cable and cable news created a space in which you could be catered to. Right. Your point of view could be catered to. There could be a. uh, I I was watching television with my sons one day, and we noticed that they were having something on TV called the World Series, or it was the International or National Cornhole Championship. And as I point out, like an important
0: sport,
1: like it was a totally important sport. And as I point out, it is the only sport, to my knowledge, that is sponsored by baked beans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And but they were covering it. ESPN 11 or whatever is covering it in a very serious way and talking about it like it's a real sport. And the truth is, as we move into the 1990s, even before the internet arrives, we have already started to atomize, right? We have already started to atomize our flow of information. And this is good because if you like cornhole or you like baked beans, that's good. More choices are good. And um, we ought to give people choices but the old regime is crumbling and it doesn't even know that it's going on.
0: So You're saying before the digital revolution fragments the media audience, you have a sort of a unified national narrative and that that may be deeply imperfect. It may be a sort of remote East Coast elites interpretation of events, but at least there's common cultural narratives and reference points in current affairs analysis. Then digital comes along. I mean, the the, the whole idea of digital, it was supposed to, I remember being told that digital meant you would have endless choice, and this would mean that you would have the competition of ideas and analysis. You would have overtly progressive and conservative media outlets, and well-informed citizens could make up their mind, but that's not really how things have turned out, is it?
1: Well, uh, you know, we have to uh, we have to uh, think of Sir Winston and say the only way out is through, uh, and that may be where we're going. Right? Uh, that it that is one way that the story ends uh, is that we go from this. You know, I, I'm a believer in the in the theory that that human existence is a sine wave. Mm-hmm. Things are always either coming together or falling apart. They're coming together. Or they're falling apart. And if I look over the uh, the the span of history um, of of human beings period, what do I see? I see people that are either building or destroying, and this is this is the the arc of history is long, but it it bends in no direction, <laughs> right? It's we're coming together or falling apart. We have gone through a remarkable period of dislocation, right? Uh, and one of the reasons I spend so much time talking about radio in the book is. The last time that we did anything comparable to this was the arrival of broadcast radio. Um, and I, in 1924, uh, the first radio station in the United States, KDKA in Pittsburgh, was very proud to announce that it was going to broadcast the results of the presidential election. Unfortunately, and this was not noted uh, <clears throat> in the newspaper coverage, <clears throat> excuse me, was not noted in the newspaper coverage, but there was no one with a radio set within the reach of that uh, transponder to have heard the coverage. So it was a publicity stunt, but <clears throat> we go from that in 1924 to by 1937, 1938, 80, 80, 85% of households have radios. In them. Mm-hmm. So over the course of that period of time, radio hurt the cause of democracy. It hurt the cause of freedom. It, it, it hurt, right? Um, Adolf Hitler, Really, radio worked out really well for him. Uh, It worked out really well for Father Coughlin. It worked out really well for Huey Long. Uh, It divided America. It embittered, it made politics worse in Europe and the United States. It took a long time for people to get good at using the radio. Mm -hmm. And my parallel for our moment is, you know, as we would say in West Virginia, the best way to get good at something fast is to play for more than you can afford to lose. Mm -hmm. And... The realization I think among Americans today is we've got to get better at being digital media consumers. We've got to get smarter about doing this, mm-hmm. and I believe my my hunch would be just based on what we've seen in the past that that will lead to another period of consolidation and coming together.
0: Okay. Um, before we start to look at some of the solutions and how we might respond to this, I'm i very taken. I mean. One of the things about your book is when reading it, it articulated things that I sort of felt I semi-knew but had not actually heard anyone articulate quite that way. And there was so much in the book that I found myself sort of nodding along with, particularly this idea about news judgment. You, you talk about news judgment, I think, in, 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 in Chapter 2. Uh, so much of the media, the news media industry, is inviting us to think the worst about people who we see as being on the other side and to excuse the inexcusable if the person who has done whatever it is they're supposed to have done is 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 on our side and in politics this this leads people to defend the indefensible and to make quite often grotesque and unfair criticisms of people on the other side do you do you think that one of the reasons why politics is is increasingly polarized is is because of this, this, this illness within the media.
1: Uh, yeah, sure, uh, of course. And a, a big part of the problem is that partisan media isn't really partisan. Um, and let me explain. So it doesn't matter. So if you are a Republican or you are a Democrat, mm-hmm. if, if people used to say about Fox that Fox was a house organ for the Republican party, but that's not true. Uh, In fact, what uh, over time, what I observed was that the telescope got turned around uh, and hosts on Fox would do and say things that were not good for the Republican Party, but were good for Fox ratings and Fox viewership. You could say the same thing about when MSNBC went just wild over defund the police. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say that MSNBC is a Democratic cable news network, but that's not right. That's not exactly right they are talking not for the Democratic Party. They are trying to uh, reach Democratic voters to bring them in as viewers. Their interests are not coterminal, right? It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the problem is that the demonization of others creates broken incentives for uh, politicians, for voters, for everybody else. How often, when I talk to members of Congress in both parties, how often do I hear this phrase? Well, look, I would love to get into that, but primary season and that word, and they know, right? Because they know that there's a stovepipe between their voters, their primary voters, and whatever the preferred network or news source is, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not a healthy thing because if you want less partisanship, this will, I know this will sound strange. It won't sound strange to you because you have this experience. If you want Um, less partisanship. You need stronger parties. You need healthy parties that can police themselves, that can enforce stuff, that can do the work of parties uh, and not just uh, disperse mobs or not but direct mobs uh, toward one candidate or another or this or the other thing.
0: Do Do you think then part of the problem might be the nature of some of those primaries? I mean, I live in a state and I've made my home here in Mississippi where primaries are open and I noticed, for example, in a recent runoff, what that did is far from polarizing and encouraging uh, a, a lurch towards the extremes. Actually, it meant that in the runoff, because it was an open primary, there was a premium for the candidate to actually moderate themselves and appeal to a lot of people in the middle politically. Do you think that if if primaries, which are only actually quite recent innovations in American political history, if primaries were made closed, uh, sorry, open primaries rather than closed primaries, so you 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 know anyone any registered voter in any state could vote in any party's primary. Do you think that would have a, a, a sobering effect, perhaps. on the so,
1: so for um, most of uh, almost all of my life in West Virginia growing up in West Virginia, and until about the time that I left the state, uh, West Virginia was a one party state West Virginia was a one party state for 75 or 80 years and it was a democratic state, mm-hmm. much like Mississippi had been. Um, In a one party state, an open primary has that salubrious effect because what it does is it says to people who are not really members of that party but who want to have a voice, they're going to go vote in the primary. How many people, how many people who are not really Democrats voted in the New York mayoral election for Democrat Eric Adams to try to get a better outcome there? So the open primary can work in a one party state. To have a moderating effect, other states need other answers, uh, and in some states it may be. Uh, a, you know, we're seeing a. This is a, this one of my points uh, in the book, and and very much lately, has been, we are in the generation that gets to forge a new consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, we have used up the consensus that was built in, at the end of the Vietnam War and after Watergate. Right, um, Roe was part of that. Uh, a lot of things were part of the uh, the, the, the media landscape was part of that. We had built a consensus that was useful after a terrible period of turmoil. And we are in a terrible period of turmoil and we're building a new consensus. And so we're seeing a lot of experimentation. And in some states, the answer is going to be a ranked choice primary. Speaking of New York and Eric Adams uh, or Glenn Youngkin uh, in Virginia, a ranked choice primary provides encouragement for kinder uh, electioneering. Uh, less negativity because you want to be people's second choice. Uh, other states and a lot of southern states have have a version of this, but you have an open pro- you have basically an, uh, a a nonpartisan primary with a runoff. Uh, California's experimenting with this, but we need primary reform. If there's one thing that I have learned uh, in these decades covering politics is that our 45 year experiment with primary elections is a rotten failure uh it has been a disaster uh the 1968 nominee for president for the democratic party won zero primaries Mm -hmm. um it's only really been since the 19 since 1980 that primaries have been the way that we dominantly did this and the promise was that more democracy was going to deliver more accountability and better results what we really did was take and i'll shut up right after i say this uh what we did was turn something that was like a family run firm into a publicly traded corporation mm-hmm. so if you if your name is on the building and your it's your family firm you care very much about its reputation over time you care very much that you that people think well of you and think well of how it's done and that's what parties used to be like right mm-hmm. people would have to devote whole lives to rising up the party ranks, to go from the ward, to go to the city council, to go to here, to get elected to the county, to get elected to the district, to get to go to the national convention was a big and important thing. And it, and it was a reflection of the fact that you had spent time as a volunteer and you had done all of that work and you had invested yourself into it. And therefore you cared a lot about what the outcome was. Now at a publicly traded company, if you're the CEO and your name's not on the building and you have a good golden parachute, what are, what are you trying to do? Hit the next quarterly number. You're trying to juice the stock price to get it to the next number so that you can maximize your bonus and go down to South Carolina or uh, uh, the Gulf Coast uh, you, and so that you can retire and live the good life. And if the company crashes after that, c'est la guerre. And I think we need more accountability in these parties uh, where people are more deeply invested in caring about the long-term outcomes.
0: My, my knowledge of the local Republican and Democrat party here in Mississippi is that actually you've got a lot of activists who are the latter. They, they feel a real sense of ownership over the Jackson Democrat party or the um, Gulfport Republican party. And they, they dedicate many hours to serving the cause. And the problem is that many of the, people who are active in politics are rather like the corporate ceo they they right. you know they come in for a career and 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 when when they're done they're done so yeah i mean i think it's i think it's also probably slightly unfair on grassroots party members the current system uh, to- totally because these are the people that are invested in it and they care about it and they've had to think about it right
1: you know this if you hang around long enough you're going to have to think about it But very often what happens is a consultant comes in and says, okay, here's how we're going to win the election. Here's the dirty, rotten thing that we're going to say about our opponent. Here's the, here's the gross thing that we're going to do. And here's some money and you're going to do it with, and we're going to win this election. And then we're going to move on. Mm -hmm. If you are one of those grassroots people who has logged all the time and you really care about the issues, number one, you're not going to uh, compromise on core principles But number two, you also know that you're going to be back tomorrow. One of the problems with the news media today is that we often are invited to believe that there can be such a thing as total victory, right? We are often invited to believe that somehow we could arrange a scenario in which our side, their side, any side will win an election, and then those other bad people will be made to go away, right? That somehow, and, and this is the problem with going from wrong versus right to good versus evil, right? Uh, It is entirely possible to love someone who you disagree with, right? You can love your neighbor and fundamentally profoundly disagree with that person on very important stuff, but you can still love them. Mm -hmm. But if you say that that person is evil and that they're here to do harm, Mm -hmm. then that is a serious problem. And part of what the news media today does is if you tell your viewers or readers <clears throat> continually the same story, you are good, they're bad. Uh, you love America, they hate America. Uh, you are smart, they are dumb. If you repeat that over and over, <clears throat> it's the cool water, right? It soothes them, it makes them feel better. And then when life intrudes, right, and they actually encounter these other people, or they counter, encounter news that does not, uh, does not comport with their worldview, they don't, they don't rethink what they're thinking. They get mad, uh, and they and they
0: and they get angry at their fellow citizens. I mean, I, I see this with some of the local journalism here. Um, you might be surprised to hear that in a, a relatively conservative state like Mississippi, a lot of the newsprint uh, journalists are incredibly progressive, and often they're not really journalists at all. They're not reporting. They're not. They're not explaining current affairs to an audience. They're basically unelected activists. Right. And and one of the things that I I find really striking in some of the um um, remnant newspapers in 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 mississippi is this assumption by some of the journalists the activist journalists that if if someone assesses some facts and comes to a different conclusion from them it must reflect a flaw in their character they can't Mm -hmm. they can't they can't be generous enough just to recognize that you know Two civilized people who are decent and patriotic and um, love their families and love their country um, with equal fervor um, could come to different conclusions from one another. And if 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 your journalists start from that assumption, it, it pollutes and contaminates the entire political debate. It's no wonder that young Americans grow up wanting to know platform people. If you're encouraged to think that people who don't agree with you are wicked, why would you want to listen to what they've got to say? Right.
1: We don't have to listen to them because they're bad. They hate America. So we can just, we can, we can ban, we can banish them. And, you know, part of, part of the problem. So you have two forces working in the same direction and it's not a good direction. So you have the market pressure on companies to find profitability through creating what the media scholar Andre Muir calls post journalism. Which is instead of us having information, giving it to you, you have feelings, and we're going to reflect them back to you. We're going to create a strong sense of emotional attachment with our aud- audience or readership, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that's bad enough. That's what we started out talking about. But now you identify this uh, this new kind of activist journalism, which denounces what they call both sidesism that says, well, you can't share uh, those points of view, because those points of view are wrong, and those points of view are bad. Now, look, there's uh, opinion journalism is journalism, and there's great opinion journalism. Um, my late, great friend, Charles Krauthammer, uh, Brett Stevens, in his appreciation after Charles, Charles's passing, uh, coined a new phrase. He said, to Crowdhammer or he, he verbified Charles's name. He said to crowd hammer is to make your opponent's case better than they ever could and still defeat it. Mm. And opinion journalism is still journalism, but it has to be aspirationally fair. The problem that we're experiencing in these newsrooms, and you're starting to see uh, in these marquee papers, the management start to push back against the tide. But what you have seen is young people coming out of journalism schools who believe fundamentally that their job is to tell people what to think. Mm. And that's for an opinion journalist, fine. But if you're covering the school board or if you're covering the county commission or the state house or Congress for that matter.
0: Or here in in Jackson, we had a water shortage and the amount of people who impressed upon that narrative their own version of racial politics or identity politics yes. it was extraordinary. Yes. It, yes. I mean, it was a water shortage, not a not, not not a not an identity crisis. And the
1: and and these journalists dramatically overstate. And I don't know, I, I haven't read the coverage there, but mm-hmm. in this in this vein, uh, these journalists dramatically overestimate our ability to to change people's minds. There was a lot of discussion around the rise of Donald Trump. Um, about what these newspapers, what these journalists were going to do to stop Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and it's like, folks, that's not your job, right? How did that work yeah, out? Yeah, exactly. That's not your job. And so they said, we're going to break the rules, basically, and mm-hmm. we're going to break the we're going to break the rules of journalism, <clears throat> and we're going to call them a liar. We're going to make these. We're going to we're going to do this stuff, <clears throat> and it of course fails because we are nowhere near as powerful as we like to think, everybody flatters themselves to believe that they're more powerful than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the the human nature. Um, Journalists are really bad about this. Mm -hmm. So you get a bunch of journalists together and it's like, well, what should we do? We should do something. And the truth is that when you get into weird times and we are in weird times, when you get into weird times, the thing that you've got to do is be cool. Mm -hmm. You've got to go back to the basics. You've got to do your job right. You've got to... I make everybody who ever has the misfortune of working for me read uh, George Orwell on political language. Mm-hmm. And I I beat it into people's heads. The uh, using language correctly, speaking correctly, speaking plainly, using real English mm-hmm. is, is how we keep this alive, right? The way that we keep this alive is not by going off course and not by um, uh, peppering things up or becoming more biased, the way that we do it is to be an honest chronicler mm-hmm. of what is happening and people are going to make up their own minds anyway.
0: The risk I think is that the American Republic itself starts to, 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 to fray. I mean, if, if the assumption is that the other guys, as you push it, you know, we, we win an election and they'll just go away. If that's your assumption, no wonder that when you you know you you win elections, you then um, want to use the power you've got to disadvantage the other side. Or if you fail to win an election, you uh, take things to the court. Or if you um, you know look at the number of presidents in recent history who've had to fight off one form of uh, um, um, legal legal action or other aimed at aimed at aimed at getting them. It, it all boils down to this refusal to accept the validity of the electoral process and a republic that doesn't accept the validity of its own rules is 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 not a republic that is going to be a very happy and successful place so what do you think you you were touching on this what is it that america now needs to do to return to this idea that you know you could honorably disagree with your opponents you could you could be a, a free marketeer who believes passionately in conservative values but happens to agree with your local Democrat congressman on a particular point. Uh, how do we get back to that?
1: Well, um, I think a big part of it is our media literacy and getting better at that. I, I for sure think that that's true. And I think we owe, as journalists, a special duty to the Constitution uh, and to the million men and women who died in, uh, in to serve, uh, to protect and defend it. Mm-hmm. Uh I think we as citizens owe special duties of filial love to each other that mean that we have to be well-informed because we cannot be good citizens unless we are failing as citizens if we are not well-informed. Mm-hmm. And if you, are, if you never read or hear anything during the course of your day that makes you question your own beliefs, mm-hmm. then you are doing it wrong, right? In the course of your day, you should encounter at least something makes you go, hmm, I hadn't thought about it that way. Or that's interesting. If everything you hear all day makes you go, yeah, I'm right, they're wrong. I'm right, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's the media piece of it. But I think the other piece is, I have been too often able to quote uh, Abraham Lincoln at the Young Men's Lyceum uh, 24 years before the Civil War when he uh, said that uh, we will either endure for all time as a nation of free men or we will die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And as I hate to have to remind everybody, the options remain the same, right? Uh, There there is no guarantee. And I think, by the way, part of the way we got here was that we went through a period of remarkable stability, right? The period of time from basically 1976 to maybe it's the financial panic, maybe it's the invasion of Iraq, but it's sometime in the aughts. Uh, We went through this remarkable period of political stability, where Mm -hmm. if you could have told me uh, the outcomes of four counties in Ohio and Florida, I could have told you who was going to win each presidential election. Mm -hmm. So we went through this really stable period. And then when you come out of that and you go into this entropy, Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: it takes a while to get your sea legs. It takes a while to figure it out. And um, either we will figure it out or we will not. And its I think it's uh, healthy for Americans to remember that this can go away and that this is not normal. Our experiences uh, in uh, the United States, in the Anglosphere, uh, it, 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 the rule of law uh, and individual rights attached to human beings is not the norm of human experience. Uh, and I, I tell uh, Democrats all the time, to go and listen to Barack Obama's speech at the 2020 virtual convention from the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And basically what he's telling Democrats is you got to get in on this, right? You've got to get in on this constitution. I know you don't like some of the guys who drafted it. I know you don't like, I know you don't like, but you got to get in on this because if we lose this, mm-hmm. this is all going away. And, I, you know, uh, the, the philosophers tell us that pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. So we're getting ready to find out how much of a behind kicking America needs before we go, okay, 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 okay. I'll love my neighbor a little bit. And maybe I will be a little better news consumer. And maybe I won't reward rotten candidates,
0: even though I want to beat the other side. Chris, you've been incredibly generous of your time. Um, well done on such a great book. Um, are you doing any speaking tours? Any chance of you coming to Mississippi and talking about it? I would love to come to Mississippi and talk about
1: it. Um, I am. Uh, I have uh, inadvisedly undertaken a book tour during a, uh, a midterm election season, and I have been uh, like a uh, like a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest for uh, several weeks now. But on the other side of uh, the election, uh, more dates to come. I promise.
0: Well, thank you so much and uh, best of luck with it.
1: I really enjoyed talking to you.